Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. I'm Washi Ginsberg. Thanks for being here. This is episode 111 with Jeffrey Foskett. He's a guitar player from California. Oh, and he's also the former musical director for Brian Wilson, and he's been a member of the Beach Boys for over 40 years. More about him in a moment. If you're new, welcome. Glad you could be here. Thank you so much for coming. I'm Osha. This is my show. Please subscribe in the podcast app of your choice or at oshaginsberg.com. You can go there and listen to the other 110 episodes uh, that are sitting there. You can email me if you like. Send us your email at gmail.com. Thank you so much to everybody that emailed this week. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, on Facebook. You can also find the mailing list. It's there. It's on the right next to me with my folded arms and my white T-shirt. I won't spam you. I might occasionally ask you for money for Movember, but that's about it. So how are you going this week? Um, to check in with you, I'm pretty sure that just like you, I've been, fe- I've been left feeling utterly helpless at the horrific violence unleashed around the world this week in Lebanon, in Africa, in France, in Iraq, in Syria. It's all, it's really frightening. I, I don't know about you, but I know that I hugged everybody I loved a little bit tighter. And I, you know, All I can do is what I can do in my community. I can't go to France and fix it. I can't go to Syria and fix it. I can't go to North Africa and fix it. But I can do what I can do within my community. And that's what I can do. Anyway, I'm sitting on the floor of my brother's Queenslander in Brisbane right now. (laughs) So, never all gone to bed. So if it sounds like I'm ranting to myself in a room late at night alone, because I am... (laughs) So let me tell you about my guest today. Um, Jeffrey Foskett is a singer and guitar player. He's from Northern California. He's been a permanent member of the Beach Boys since the late 1970s. He went on to be Brian Wilson's uh, musical director and right-hand man for many years and recently has rejoined the Beach Boys. And this is a band that continues to write, record and tour to millions of fans all around the world. I've been doing it for over 50 years. Now, it's not often that I get a chance to chat with someone who's so clearly gifted um, and has had a career in music that's gone on for so long, and you can bet that there's quite a story behind Jeffrey's success. It's, it's a cracker. And I'm a big believer in putting your intention out there into the universe and then focusing your energy in the direction of that intention. But Jeffrey's story of how he got his break, it gave me goosebumps, but it's not uncommon. If you've listened to this show, you've heard it time and again. 
Now, I recorded this yesterday in the Intercontinental Hotel in Double Bay in Sydney on a, on a humid Saturday afternoon when the world was still in shock about the news of France. Um, Jeffrey and I sat in his hotel room. We were only a few hours away from the Beach Boys taking the stage, yet Jeff was kind enough to give me an hour to talk with him. The Beach Boys are touring Australia this very week. Go out and see them if you can. Uh, like Jeffrey says in this show, it it might be the only time you see them and that they're committed to putting on a great show every night. So I really hope you can get along. I'm grateful for John Ferreter for hooking up this this chat. It's a hell of a story. I really hope you like it. I injured my shoulder body surfing with a kid the other day. I can't lift my arm up. to. <laughs> Lifted up myself. How are you today, Jeffrey? Very well. How are you? Yeah, I'm well. To be honest, I'm a little, I'm a little sad. Uh, we're sitting in a beautiful Double Bay in, in Sydney, Australia. It's a it's a lovely day. It's you know it's a bit grey outside, but it's still beautiful. And you know, I'm as I'm sure you are. I'm just reacting to the the news out of Paris this morning. It's incredible. You know, like I said, it, I don't think things like that would happen in this country because of the way that you know you guys run things here. Well, I would hope not. We had we had a horrible shooting last December. We had uh, we had a bloke. He um, he took over a cafe. He was a very unstable kind of guy, but nothing like the coordinated like five attacks. Yeah, that's really a shame. I mean, I don't I don't talk politics on the whole, but I I just. But you've been to Paris. You've played in many Paris. times. Many times. So sure. I mean, your heart. What do you feel when you when you see that? It's it's pathetic. I mean, literally pathetic. I don't know what that's what they're trying to prove. What what to what end does that help anything? Yeah. You know, it only disrupts life and causes chaos. And if that's what they want to do, they're doing a good job of oh, it. Oh goodness. That even here in this country far away, you know, it's yeah, it's it's a really I don't know. Certainly the, you know, I don't know. Every, everybody loves it when this sort of stuff comes up who's on the extreme ends of politics, I guess. And uh, tomorrow will be an interesting day in the news. Yeah, for the news people it will be. Yeah. Not, not for the people that suffered. No, good, good, goodness no, goodness no. But we are, we are in Double Bay. It's Sydney. It's a beautiful, safe city here in, in glorious Australia. You're on tour with the Beach Boys. It's my favorite city outside of the United States. Now, why is that? Frankly, because of the Opera House. Because I've played there many times and the acoustics in there. I mean, as far as prestigious venues go, it's one of the world's most prestigious venues. But as far as the sound of the venue, as a performer, it sounds beautiful, as does Tokyo Forum A and Osaka Forum A. And places that have equal prestige or, you know, equal mojo, Carnegie Hall, Boston Symphony Hall, places like that in the United States. They're beautiful and lovely, but they don't hold a candle to performing at the Sydney Opera House. Yeah, it's, qu it's quite a room. I've been lucky enough to be in the big the concert hall a few times. I've been in the concert hall. I've only performed in the concert hall. I yeah. haven't performed in the other theaters, but I've seen them all. It's, it's quite, when you stand on that, we, we used to do a TV show there, and you look out, it's like three, it's a big room, beautiful. It's lovely. And yeah. the, the outside... Ah. You know, features of it are just... Yeah, it's an extraordinary, extraordinary building. It's and one the, It's one of the iconic buildings or a set of, series of buildings yeah. in the world. You know? And, I, you know, I wonder, though, if something like that would get built now. You know, at the time, it was just so important to the government to go, we need to put this icon of the arts in this incredibly wealthy, you know, real estate. And somebody did the right thing. Somebody went, let's go, let's do it. That wouldn't happen today. <laughs> You know, because there's too many pencil pushers and there's too many buddy covering their own butts and yeah. everything else. So I really, I doubt that it would get done because no one wants to take responsibility if something goes wrong. There's plenty of architecture that's a testament to like a big corporation will build a big, beautiful building or, you know, but as far as, you know, a, a, a government or a benefactor building a building for the arts, it's, it's pretty rare. I'm really glad they did it. Yeah. <laughs> 
Thank Walt you. Disney Hall is the other one I think of. Disney Hall is absolutely in downtown gorgeous. LA. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful. I've performed there many times as well, and it's it sounds beautiful. Yeah, as, you know, and Royal Albert Hall and um, Royal Festival Hall, both in London, are very prestigious venues, but not nearly as good sounding. <laughs> you know, that's the difference. We're a long way from where you grew up, though, aren't we? Yeah, I grew up in Northern California, so you know we're quite a ways. It's quite a flight. <laughs> yeah. Should I close this door? Yeah, sure. I don't mind having the window open. It's all right having the air coming in. Yeah, but we don't want the motorcycles on. Yeah, sure. I don't mind. It's the sounds of double bay. It's all right with me. Okay, good. Then I'll leave it open. Yeah, air is good. It's all part of the ambience. It's it's good. So when when you most people who are in your position in their careers usually got bit fairly early by the bug. How early did you know that music was your thing? When I was eight years old. Yeah, do you remember the moment? Yeah, I saw yeah. the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. Ah. My dad sat my two brothers and I down, and he said, you're going to thank me later for making you watch this now. And um, I did. I thanked him. Because um, when I saw the Beatles perform on Ed Sullivan, I was eight years old, and I said, that's what I want to do for a living. And... Uh, I couldn't believe that, you know, I couldn't believe the sound coming out of that little television to start with, and I couldn't believe how cool the Beatles looked, and I couldn't believe how great the song sounded. It was, as far as pop music goes, we, I think, we, we hit a fairly pretty big peak early on. You need to get that? No. Is your phone ringing? No. Are you okay? As far as, yeah, as far as pop music goes, you know, we hit a, we hit a fairly pretty big peak pretty early. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. As far as pop music. I mean, there's plenty of great music out there still. Yeah. But as far as pop music, it peaked. I it, mean, you know, with... I always say you're holding two pieces of vinyl in your hands. One is Wouldn't It Be Nice and God Only Knows, and one is Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane. Those four songs were on each the flip side of 245 records. I can't believe that those four songs were on two records, and they literally changed the face of music, you know? Yeah. I mean, other songs before that, but... I, that, never, I never thought about that. Like, for less than five bucks, you could have had... That's it. Yeah. God Only Knows and Wouldn't It Be Nice? I mean, God Only Knows... That's my favorite record, and it's my favorite song. And Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane, I mean, come on, man. <laughs> it's, take your pick. Yeah. I mean, they're both just so equally brilliant. How many bands do you think owe their existence to that night on Ed Sullivan? I would say certainly every band that was <laughs> formed in the, in, from 64 on and probably some before. I mean, you know, everyone that I know, all of my peers, everybody that I've worked with, obviously cites, you know, yeah. February 9th, 1964 as the the turning point in their career. Did that a cultural moment, though, could just happen just like that? And then just the brains of so many people just went, oh! It's crazy, isn't it? I mean, to absolutely think yeah. that that one moment was seminal in so many people's lives yeah there's a similar as a documentary um actually about the 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 the, the technique of, of putting a record on a technics 1200 and and moving it back and forth all right i can't that's a terrible impression of it yeah but maybe you should stick with it yeah i should um but uh there's a, I watched once a documentary once watched a documentary about it and all of like the biggest DJs in the world they all cited this one moment when Herbie Hancock played at the eighty three Grammys and they watched the DJ do it there and they went, Oh my god, that's it. Nineteen eighty three. Nineteen eighty three. Eighty three Grammys. I didn't realise that. And Herbie Hancock played Rocket and yeah. um, Bill Laswell produced it and it was just this crazy Grand Mixer DXT was the DJ. Herbie Hancock was genius. Oh man. my god. I mean that cat is something else. Genius. I had a grateful interview in one time, and it was oh, just, I, I was fanboying quite intensely. <laughs> He's a pretty amazing guy. So, how early, how long after that did you like, uh, Mum and Dad? I'm gonna need a guitar. My birthday was February seventeenth. Hey, so six Good days timing, later. Ed. Yeah, Thanks, eight Mr. days Sullivan. later, I got the guitar. <laughs> really? Yeah. Honestly. 
That is fantastic. Unbelievable. And you pulled it out of the box, and you're like, how come I don't sound John? How do I go and don't sound like John already? I didn't actually um, try to do anything. You know, I... I took I was I was taking piano lessons but not until later I had the guitar first and I think I you know there was no video there was no way to record yeah. the Ed Sullivan show obviously and so the first record that was brought into my house my older brother Alex brought I get around and don't worry baby and that did it for me I mean that I had to learn those two songs and so they're not that easy, you know. There's a lot of chord changes, a lot of Brian, the way he arranged those songs, you know, was was um, very advanced for 1964, certainly, or 63, whenever they cut those. But um, the Beatles songs were the ones that really caught me first, and they were they were easier for me to play incorrectly than, than the Beach Boys songs were. <laughs> because if you played the wrong chord in a Beach Boys song, it was obviously wrong. If you played the wrong chord in a Beatles song, you could fake and get by. When you, so I'm guessing you, you took music at high school and, and um, all this sort of thing? Surprisingly enough, I didn't. Yeah? I, I was in one choir class in um, middle school. And... Um, it wasn't really my cup of tea. It wasn't the kind of music that I wanted to sing. Yeah. So naturally, I formed my own band. Right. And played what I wanted to play. Did and you? Did you? Uh, so this is your high your high school band. My high school band. Yeah. Did you have an excellent high school band name? It was called Cherry. Yeah. <laughs> and the reason it was called Cherry is because Cherry is a description of a really cool hot rod. Like that's a cherry. That's a cherry car. You know. So we called it Cherry because we were wanted to be cool. <laughs> I don't think we were cool. I mean, we weren't that good, but nonetheless. But it's okay. You've got to be not good for a while. It's yeah, important. It is actually. It's 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 really important. A lot of people think they you know I'll get I'll get the guitar on February seventeen. Uh, I'll be in the band by March. Uh, I guess I'll have a record deal by May, and I'll be on tour by the summer. That's what some people think. <laughs> it didn't happen quite that quickly for me. Um, I didn't even get into a band until I was 13. So I was eight, so it took five years to get into a band. But then I haven't been out of one since. Nice. I've never done anything but perform in a band since I was 13. So did you... Uh, I mean, you, I did continue my education, but it, you know, it took me quite a while to do that. Yeah, I was going to ask, did your parents, how, how were they with the idea of mum and dad, I'm you know, going to play well, music? Do they know, want I, you to I go to college? In, in California... You, you're required to go to school until you're 18 mm -hmm. and that's high school and you graduate from high school. And then I went, I did go to university, but it took me quite a while to, um, get through everything. So seven years and most people do it in four, but I was actually on tour with the beach boys for the last <laughs> part of my career. Yeah. School. So I want to, I want to talk about that. We'll speak about moments. We speak about incredible moments. Now, the, the legend has it you're you're playing a gig, and Mike Love from the Beach Boys saw you, and then a little while went by, and then he called you up, and you're in the band. Is that the story? Well, yeah, that's that is that that's part of the story, and the whole story is for my twentieth birthday, I wanted to meet Brian Wilson, and so I knew that he lived on Bellagio Road in this city called Bel Air. And I knew that the Beach Boys had a very famous record cover, and it was called Wild Honey. And it was, it turns out it's a picture of a stained glass window. I didn't know that then, but a friend of mine who was in a band called uh, The Syndicate of Sound, they had a one hit called Little, Hey Little Girl in the mid-60s. He had been to Brian Wilson's house. And he said, oh, you know, that album cover is actually a picture of the stained glass window in front of Brian's house on Bellagio Road. And I said, no, I didn't know that. And so I remembered that. This was when I was 14. So six years later, I remembered that bit of information, and I thought, it's my 20th birthday. I'm driving down to Bel Air. I'm going to find Bellagio Road. I'm going to find that stained glass window. I'm going to introduce myself to Brian. And I did. 
I knocked. You just rolled up and knocked I, on the door. I rolled up to that, and there was a little white picket fence, only about waist high. And there was a little buzzer at the gate, and it said, stand back, speak normal. And I pressed the button, and a voice came on and said, who is it? And I said, it's Jeffrey Foskett for Brian Wilson. Just a minute. Buzz, the gate buzzed, so I clicked it open. And I got to the front door, and Brian actually opened the front door before I even had a chance to ring the buzzer. And he said, come on in. That was it. I mean, that's, that's how easy it was in 1976 to approach these guys. And then the next month, March, Michael walked into, um, Michael Love walked into this restaurant where my band was performing. And um, I remember it was the summer of 1976 because my partner Randell and I called it the summer of love. And we met Mike Love at this restaurant. And he was having dinner and somebody in the back bar where we were playing said, hey man, uh, Mike Love from the Beach Boys is having dinner in the restaurant. I said, oh, I've got to go meet him. So I ran into the restaurant and, you know, I'm a big fan, obviously, and so I chatted him up for a while and, you know, obviously I was bothering him. I mean, he was very gracious, but, um, you know, even at this point, the band was probably... What, 12 or 14 years so he's he's used to this you know and um, so I said well listen my band is performing in the back of the restaurant you know would you like to come and see us he said well you know I don't smoke cigarettes and I don't drink alcohol so probably not but thanks for the offer and he was you know he's nice but just you know realistic and so um Fortunately, I had a tab, meaning I could sign um, my meals to the restaurant and they would just take out whatever I ate at the end of my week and just not pay me. So I signed his dinner to my tab. <laughs> and he actually came back to say thank you and he stayed for a set. And um, he said, you sound pretty good. You know, I... Uh, I may have something going for you. And uh, it wasn't the next month or anything, but I mean, within several months, he did have his manager call me. And uh, it was the best dinner investment that I ever made. <laughs> but again, there's these two incredible moments. Like inside you on the, your 20th birthday, you just went, I'm just going to go do it. I'm going to do it. I'm just going to go and say hi. Do you remember and what you talked about at Brian's house that day? Yeah, I do. We I talked specifically about... Um, the making of Don't Worry Baby and I and the making of Fun 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 because I think those two records sound markedly different than some of the other records they were making at that time. And I asked him about um, Friends, the Friends LP, that was a big record in my uh, cadre of records then and I, I asked him about that one. You know, and he, he wasn't very specific on anything but he uh, he said, why don't we jam a little? Get and out. he sat down at the piano and we sang some songs. A couple of Beach Boy songs, but mostly stuff that he really liked, like Cherry Pie by Skip and Flip and uh, Why Won't They Let Us Fall in Love. I think that's by the Ronettes. And uh, there was a couple of other ones. Was uh, there anybody else at the house? Yeah, his, his wife, his then wife Marilyn was there and she actually made us sandwiches. <laughs> And uh, she was very gracious and very sweet. She you must have is. had something about you because you wouldn't have been the first person to knock on the door. You must well, have had something about you that was like, I'm not nuts. I, you know, if, okay, now, I say that it's, it's, prov it's God's providence. I mean, he wanted me to meet Brian. He wanted me to be in this band. I mean, otherwise, how could that possibly have happened? Yeah, right. You know, honestly. There's some, somewhere the cogs were aligning, yeah. So, I mean, call it what you like. Uh, but... I really do thank God for those two moments because I don't think that, you know, I think that that's really how this whole thing came together. But if you hadn't put in the dedication to be where you were musically at the time that you knocked on Brian's door, nor were you, so you were able to jam with him and speak as a, you know, someone who was competent, nor been in the place musically where when Mike did wander back and say hello and saw you, if you hadn't put that stuff in, 
it wouldn't have the story wouldn't have the same ending you know you you came to the party as well that's very nice of you to say that but um again i give all the credit to god for any talent that i have because i really open my mouth and the notes come out right. i mean it's that simple and fortunately, most of the time they're in tune. <laughs> and um, as I like to say, I'm a guitar owner. I'm not really a guitar player. You know, I mean, I, I'm better than most, but I'm not nearly as good as some. And standing next to Jeff Beck and Eric Clapton and Jimmy Page, which I've had the honor to stand next to all three, you can clearly see that those guys are guitar players <laughs> and I'm a guitar owner. <laughs> so even... The other guitar player in the Beach Boys now, Scott Totten, is much, much, much more qualified than I am. But it's, uh, and you know as well as I do, being in a band is more about, it's more than just about what you can play. It's, because there's, there's, there's that classic Charlie Watts line, you know, I've been in the, I've been in the Rolling Stones for 20, well, 30 years at the time the quote was. I think I've played for about six, six months. Yeah. The rest of it, I was just sitting around. Yeah. No. You've got to be good with traveling. You've got to be good with being in a van. You've got yeah, to be good. It's like you've, I, you've, I produced a Mickey Dolan's record and, and I was talking with him at great length on a lot of the breaks that we had. And um, he gave me a great line. He said, you know, I do the shows for free. They pay me for to travel. And to do everything else, you know, the interviews, the meet and greets, all that. And, and it's true. Being on stage for the two hours, that's the really fun part. It's the other 22 hours that you really earn your money. Right. Because today, for example, we had to get up early take a flight from Canberra here to Sydney. And then, you know, I'm doing this with you. And then as soon as we're finished here, I need to go and be backstage and stand around for another hour and a half and do more interviews and do a meet and greet and then go on stage for two hours and then come back here and then wake up and do the same thing tomorrow and fly to Brisbane. So, I mean, the two hours on stage is the real joy of everything. Yeah. Well, I hope this isn't too not painful. That I, not that I don't enjoy doing the interviews specifically like this one. <laughs> but, well, uh, I, hope, I hope this one's okay. I'm, re I'm really grateful. It, well, I'm grateful too. Thank well, you, you know, I you know I know what it's like on show day, so I don't want to I don't want to no, get. It's fine. In, in I, I really I really enjoy I I do enjoy doing interviews. Do you remember the first day on the job? Oh yeah, at absolutely. the Beach Boys. Because yeah. we've all had the first day on the job where you're like you put on a nice shirt and you're like remember everybody's name, don't swear in front of everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Fortunately, I never had one of those jobs. Man, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was in South Africa, actually. It was at Sun City, South Africa. And I've been there. It's a wild place. It was uh, Christmas Eve. was my first show. And there was zero rehearsal. And I mean zero. Carl wasn't in the band. And he was the one that would have called the rehearsal to you know, break the new guy in. And since he wasn't around, nobody even thought of it. So fortunately... Bruce Johnston and I sat next to one another on the flight, and the flight was 24 hours then because it was like L.A. to New York, New York to the Canary Islands, Canary Islands to Joburg, and then Joburg up to Sun City. And that was a total of 24 hours. So he and I, in between sleeping and, and you know, just chatting, me being a fan, asking him a bunch of questions, we went over you know, potentially what I should sing and what he thought Alan might sing and what, you know, Brian might sing. And so, I mean, we didn't have any rehearsal at all. I walked on stage and if I heard a part was missing, I sang it. Otherwise, I just sang the top part, you know, and that was it. Did you see the set list at all? Oh, yeah, I saw the set list. As yeah. you walked on or before? Yeah, no, basically it was backstage. I remember we were... We were in a very, very, very nice holding room. They had butlers and they had white jackets with white ties. And yeah. they would get you anything that you wanted. Um, and it was a five-star resort. And even the backstage area was five-star. And um, Brian and Dennis and Michael Love and Alan Jardine and Bruce Johnston were there along with um, a couple of other guys. Michael Kowalski on drums, Eddie Carter on bass, and they, they joined the Beach Boys in 1967, and then Mike Maros on keyboards. So that was it. And uh, man, I'll tell you, and none of those guys sang, so 
it was kind of unnerving because I was the only non-original guy on stage that was singing. And um, I didn't want to be the one to mess things up, you know. So it was very unnerving but very fun. <laughs> and I remember specifically, we <laughs> it was very funny because the curtains opened and there was um, a staircase going down into the audience, like a flowing half-circle staircase, uh-huh. and it was all covered in this gold-toned carpet. And sitting in the second row on the end chair was Sean Connery. <laughs> and I thought, I can't believe this. I'm playing in the Beach Boys, and Sean Connery is in the audience. So I actually put the guitar down, and I walked downstairs to Sean Connery, and I said, man, I am a huge fan. May I please have my photo made with you after the show? He said, of course. (laughs) So I walked back up on stage, and Love looked at me and said, now that we're all here, because I didn't even think that I was, you know, I was such a fan of Connery, I had to go say hi to him. <laughs> Your first day on the job. Absolutely. The moment the curtains open. You they go, open the oh, curtains. Sean Connery's and, here. And I was starting, I was, I was starting because California Girls, that was the first song, and I played the opening guitar lick. So they couldn't start without me. So I put the guitar on, I went down and shook his hand, and he came back up and started the lick. <laughs> I mean, it was, I didn't even know what I was thinking, but it worked. <laughs> well, you they kept you, and it's been forty years. Yeah, since yeah, and uh, fortunately, there was a photographer named Bill Campbell. I remember his name because he gave me his card because I would never forget that. And uh, he took the photo of Connery and me, and he actually printed it in uh, Time Magazine, and I was, it was unbelievable, you know, and uh, I. I couldn't believe that it was memorialized my first day with the Beach Boys and then meeting Connery backstage after the show. It's not bad when you get to meet James Bond at the same day as Incredible, yeah. starting the dream job. Yeah, man. I the, mean, unbelievable. At what point did you kind of go, oh, yeah, so the first record I ever bought was you guys and now I'm playing it on stage with you? Did, yeah. Did you wait a few days before you let them know that? or No. No? Oh, no. I told, I told everybody right away. I, <laughs> I told everybody that would listen. But, you know, honestly, as I said, it had only been 15 years or so since they'd started the group. Because, only 15, because it's 55 now, or close to it. Yeah. Um, they were, they'd heard it all by then. Every one of them had already heard it all, you know. They, the guys, oh, I... There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We went to high school together. I mean, that's the famous line. I mean, Michael Love went to Dorsey High School and Alan Jardine went to a different school and Bruce went to University High School and, and Dennis and Brian Wilson went to Hawthorne High School. And by the time Carl got into high school, he went to Hollywood Professional School. But everybody seems to think that all of the guys went to Hawthorne High School. So you can instantly tell when someone's exaggerating because they'll say, oh, I went to school with Al Jardine at Hawthorne High. I went to school with uh, Bruce at Hawthorne High School, you know, and I'm thinking, yeah, okay. I mean, and uh, so that was kind of like me, you know, I was such a fan. I was saying anything I could say just to have conversation with any of these guys. You know, and um, 
How were your folks about? Were your folks happy that you uh, got they the were, job? They were, ex- they were ecstatic. You know, they were very happy. Um, they were big fans of the group, obviously, and be- knowing that I was a big fan of the group. I guess it was kind of surreal for them, too, because, you know, in my high school annual, the, when I graduated from high school, there was a, a little form, what will you be doing in five years? And I wrote, I'll either be playing in the Beatles or the Beach Boys. And since the Beatles have broken up, that only leaves one option. And I, I made it. You have no idea how... Jeffrey, you have no idea how often when I've done this show, you have I've done... This is like 120 of these I've done. You have no idea how many people have said out loud or written down... The, the audacious thing that seems almost impossible and then it happens. It, it's, it's too common for it not to be something that works in some way. It yeah. really does. Well, I say good for them <laughs> and good for me. Yeah, you and made thank it God. You made it happen. It's, uh, it's extraordinary. Now, when you started the band, the, it was still very, very contemporary for for the audience the audience had grown with the band but you were obviously aware of the legacy of the the, the, the music i mean of course it was a soundtrack to coming of age for of an course. entire an entire generation of course now as you stand on stage and you sing these songs that people have put so much emotional investment into that's the song that was playing when they danced with their wife for the first time on this the song that was playing as i said goodbye to their girlfriend do you get a sense of that yeah absolutely and and not only that to take it one step further I mean, literally, sometimes, and every night, every single time that we perform, for some of those people, it's the only time they're ever going to see the band live. So, I mean, there are fans that come every year. There are fans that come multiple times a year. But for a certain quotient of every audience, it's the only time they're ever going to see the band, in whatever formation that it is, from when I was in it, when all the Wilsons were alive, to when it's the format that it is now, it's the Beach Boys. And so I perform to the people that are only going to see it, the band one time in their life. And that's how I perform the songs. And that's the commitment that I have to the music. There must be, it must be an extraordinary feeling to, to stand on stage and have that much... Uh, memory and emotional reminiscing and energy projected upon you? Well, it's a real honor to be in the band. And, I mean, Brian writing the music and, for the most part, Michael writing the words. And, obviously, Brian had other co-writers. But, I mean, to stand on stage with these guys... And, you know, I, I did 15 years with Brian as, his, as a solo artist... Uh, in between my two stints in the Beach Boys. And, um, you know, there's there's virtually no difference. I mean, the audiences are, are pretty much the same. The only thing different was the song list and the way that the songs were performed. But to me, I always had the same honor for the songs because, you know, I I revere the music. It, it virtually is the soundtrack of my life as well, a large portion of the soundtrack of my life. And so I want to sing it the best I can sing it. I want to perform it the best I can perform it because I want to hear it the best that it can be heard. Yeah. It's, it's you know, it's nothing... An author can write a great book, but you can't relive that. You know, you just have to kind of read, read the whole book. A stand-up comedian can't do the same routine. But, for, but musicians get to, you know, replay this little bit of memory triggers for everybody. Yeah. You know, that's a really interesting thing about, about pop songs. It's three and a half minutes, minutes of a memory recall that, that is interesting puts you, you, puts you that back in a, in, a, in a place. Yeah. Um, and it does. Yeah. It's like uh, it's like the seventh sense, you know, yeah. because um, smell, you know, certain odors or aromas. Um, that's obviously. I think that's the most powerful one. Yeah, olfactory. That's, yeah. that's why I said that. Yeah, and so when you when you smell something, it's like that. But when you hear the song, 
I, I remember Carl, and I said this to Michael last night. We were, you know, Michael changes the set list every night. Even if it's only one or two songs, he changes the set list every night. And um, we were talking specifically about the song California Girls. And I said, as long as we don't open with it like we used to, because when Carl was alive, for the most part, the band performed California Girls as the opening song. And Carl's reasoning was the guitar intro, the 12-string guitar intro is, he used to say, hark, it's the Beach Boys. And you instantly know that, that it's the Beach Boys coming da, da, by, da, 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 by da, the intro. Yeah. And so it's like, you know, okay, there you go. Um, but it's a very difficult song to start to sing because um, the, the, the falsetto vocal on that's very difficult. As a as a first song, after your voice warms up, it's not that difficult. Mm. So I was talking to Michael about that last night, and I said, "As long as we don't open with," it. he said, "No, I don't want to give that away too early." So because it is an iconic song, yeah, obviously. When you uh, there's very few bands that have this. Uh, Beach Boys, I would say. Stones, I would say. U two, I would say. There's like uh, these bands like there's this you can go and buy a ticket to their shows and there's like eight or ten songs that I pretty much have to play. Oh, yeah. If the people aren't like, wow, well, I didn't play, they didn't play, uh, um, uh, you know, Paint It Black. Wow, it wasn't a great show. No, I wish they played, you know. It's interesting because I went, I went to see a friend of mine play, I won't say his name, and uh, he won an Academy Award for a song and he Christopher didn't, Cross. I'm not going to say <laughs> it's not. It's not Christopher. Okay. <laughs> he did win an Academy Award, and he always plays uh, uh, the theme from Arthur. But um, this other guy that I know won an Academy Award, and he didn't play the song that won the Academy Award. And I thought, you know, that that really is audacious. You know, I know you have a lot of other songs that you're playing, but that song won an Academy Award. That's very rare, and the guy didn't play it and I was honestly very surprised it's rarer than a Grammy for a song to win oh much Academy. more rare yeah. oh yeah an, an Academy Award I mean you know there's only a handful of groups that have won Academy Awards for you know pop yeah. music you know because the Leslie Brickuses and the uh, Bacharachs and the the Tim Rice I'm, I'm yeah uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber you know those guys oh god that reminds me I've got this, so Rogers I've just... Hammerstein. Oh, well, the back rack. So I've just... My, my girlfriend and I have been together for about a year and a half and about three, four months into it, she introduced me to her daughter. Um, so I have this 11-year-old girl in my life. and How lovely. Oh, she's the best. It's Great. so nice. Great. Well, they don't tell you as you fall in love with a kid as well, which yeah. is it's really precious. Yeah. One, one moment she's this fun kid I get to hang out and play Yuna with. The next moment I'm like, I must protect you. I must provide for you. <laughs> like it <laughs> happened overnight. But now I'm just thinking... Baccarat. I'm going to have to. I'm just putting this whole list of things that when she's old enough, I'm going to have to just place it down and go. Listen. <laughs> yeah, you will too. Oh man, that, that Baccarat stuff. That, that's. It's interesting because I was talking with Bruce Johnston the other day, and, you know, and we and I was talking. I, I was being interviewed by uh, Eric Hedegaard for the Rolling Stone, and and he was talking, and one of his questions was specifically, why why do you th- why don't you think Michael Love gets the credit that he deserves? And and I was talking with Bruce about that because I, I gave an answer and I don't want to repeat it here, but um, you can read it in the Rolling Stone later. <laughs> um, and he said, it's interesting, Jeff, you know, because how many people mention Hal David? Yeah. And, and I said, yeah, not many. No, many. But I mean, he wrote 90% or more of every song with Burt Bacharach. Yeah. But Bacharach is the only one mentioned, as case in point, you just said. Yeah. I'll have to introduce my 11-year-old to Bacharach's music. And the music is great, but it's only half of the song. Oh, I mean, Hal David's lyrics are oh, genius. That's it. They're genius. Yeah. And, um, you know, those... And, and he said the same thing about Bernie Taupin, you know. He said, yeah. how many people... You know, no Taupin, but El- you know, Elton wrote all of that music around those lyrics. They yeah. were written first, and the songs came. And the music. I think came Taupin later. had the better deal. Never had to go on tour. Yeah, got to live at home with his family. And same with Hal David. And he, and you know, <laughs> he, he was older. You know, by those standards, he's probably younger than I am yeah. now. But <laughs> much younger than I am now. 
but you know he just did his th- his thing. But when you uh, when you toured with Brian Wilson, uh, obviously a very different dynamic on stage to when when you were with the Beach Boys, but slightly different audiences perhaps but if I'm not mistaken you got to play some of those really big festivals in, yeah. in the UK I believe you played Glastonbury Glastonbury Isle of Wight and uh, what's that like when you're playing this electric just picnic. people until the horizon well I'd I'd already performed at Live Aid and I'd already performed at the Washington Mall with the Beach Boys I mean we'd played to three quarters of a million people half a million people but Glastonbury I mean Glastonbury is a because of the the whole package of Glastonbury, you know, the way that it's set up, it's, that, that was a real moment for me because, um, you know, there, there are several stages and I guess the people stand near the stage where they know that the acts that they want to see are on. And then over here is another stage and, you know, those folks just turn 90 degrees and they see this. So Van Morrison was on the stage right before us. And um, then, I, I, if I remember correctly, another band played for an hour or so on one of the other stages because it's just constant music, mm. you know, and that's how that, the festival works. And so in the hour, you know, of taking Van Morrison's gear off the stage and setting up for Brian, this other band was performing. I don't remember who they were. Some incidental band, Rolling Stone, somebody like that, you know. <laughs> Not a big name. And uh, then when we came on stage, it was pouring down rain, absolutely pouring down rain. And the sun came out, and it was absolutely beautiful. And um, it was beautiful for the entire set. But, I mean, we literally had to wear wellies to get into the place just because there was so much mud and dirt and junk. And, you know, there was uh, plywood laid out for miles so you could walk and try to stay dry and as soon as Brian took the stage the sun came out it was just absolutely beautiful but that festival was really special because um, you know it's it's an iconic festival obviously and it it was it was a real moment for me I mean it was I was really proud to play that I'm, I'm really grateful that I got to say that I played Glastonbury. It's a pretty big choir to sing along with, isn't it? Yeah, it is actually. Yeah. And they love to sing at that. that they do. They yeah. love to sing. And, you know, with Brian, um, you know, with the Beach Boys, like I said, I'd done all the Washington Mall shows and I'd done Live Aid. And I mean, those aren't small. Yeah, things, those are big, you know? big gigs. Yeah. Very big. And you're too young to remember those. Of course. I don't know. I watched Live Aid. <laughs> I stayed up and watched it until my eyes wouldn't work. And, um, but with Brian, um, I got to play everything else that I didn't get to do with the the Beach Boys. So yeah. it was very fun. So you're out here with the you're in Australia with the Beach Boys, um, and you, you're working with Michael Love. Uh, I love that you call him Michael. Everyone else calls him Mike. Yeah, well, his it's funny because Carl always referred to him as Michael, and so I just picked up on that forty years ago. Uh huh. You know, so I've never called him anything but he. This is the man you bought dinner for. That's right. <laughs> but he's, you know, he's he's a very interesting cat. He's a very spiritual cat. He is. Yeah, it must be a a, a nice a nice environment too. Well, it's a very nice environment, you know, uh, and it was a very nice environment in Brian's world as well. You know, I mean, these guys are cut from the same cloth. They're first cousins. They their families were very close growing up very musical growing up, obviously, and that's why they, you know, formed the band originally. And, um, you know, as I said, I, th- I, think, I don't think Michael gets a fair shake. I think people love to not like him. And, you know, maybe because he tells the truth, and the truth is unsettling for some people. And a guy like Hal David who never wanted the spotlight and never said, you know, hey, by the way, I wrote those lyrics, and by the way, you know, I'm half writer on that song. You know, unfortunately for Michael, that was taken away from him. And it not only did he not, you know, get the credit, I mean, his name was simply left off of the song. And, I mean, that isn't right. And so... 
you know, he had to play the bad guy and sue whomever he had to sue to actually be put on the songs and rightfully, you know, noted that he was the writer or the co-writer on those things. And that's one of the main reasons why I think that he um, is vilified. And, you know, like I said, he tells the truth. You know, if, if you ask him a question, he's not going to give you an answer that's politically correct. <laughs> if you asked him about what happened in Paris today, he would give you a very straightforward answer of what he thinks is wrong in the world in general and what he thinks you should do to fix it. <laughs> and whereas I'm, wouldn't, I would just say something like, you know, I really don't like to talk politics. I yeah. feel very sorry for those people and I'll pray for their families. But I mean, I don't think that served one good purpose to do any of that stuff today. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think Michael's answer would be vastly different. Than <laughs> you've, you've mentioned a few times your, uh, the, this bit of spirituality that's in your life, Jeffrey. I'm a, I'm a very strong believer in Christ, and I'm a very strong believer in um, the fact that God gave me everything that I have. And um, I don't have any qualms about saying that because I believe that. And every, all of my talent, whether you like it or whether you don't like it, whether you like me, whether you don't like me, whether you're jealous, whether you're a friend, God gave it to me. I don't take any credit for it. So your argument should be with him, <laughs> not with me. So was this something from when you grew up? Was it from your parents? Uh, my parents were, uh, you know, they were, I don't know if they were believers, but uh, they believed in God, certainly. But, you know, they didn't go to church or anything. But uh, uh, I did. Yeah. I did when I was uh, 14 or so, from 14 on. Right. And, uh yeah, I just thought it made sense to me. And uh, the, the main reason that I really got involved is this, this friend of mine, Steve Murray, was a, uh, a druggie. And, a, and I was never into any of the drugs or the booze or the women or the cigarettes or any of that stuff. But this guy was. I mean, he was. But not only was he into all that stuff, but he was like the coolest guy that everybody wanted to be like. And over one summer he came back and he was completely different and he was completely different in a really great way he was already the coolest guy but now he was cool times 10 and he said yeah man I found God and I went to this place the Maranatha house and maybe you should come with me and he really turned me on to it and uh, I really found the lifestyle appealing and since I wasn't into drugs and I didn't drink and, you know, I didn't have a girlfriend and I, that wasn't, you know, a lot of that stuff wasn't my scene. The Christian lifestyle made sense to me. So that's what I adhered to. With the, with the ethos behind that and the, the discipline behind that and the humility behind that, do you feel that this is part of the reason why you've had the career you've had? Absolutely, without any question. And I also think of all the hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars that I've saved by not doing blow and heroin and drinking every night. No, I'm serious. I mean, can you imagine if I had spent money for 40 years, even on two or three beers or two or three, you know, spirit drinks or, you know, a vial of Coke or a bindle of this or, you yeah. know, a lid of marijuana. I mean, honestly, it would be hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah. You know, so... There's <laughs> a road, a buddy of mine, he plays... He plays bass in a. He's a hired gun. He's an absolute mercenary. He's a fantastic bass player. He's like a metronome. And um, he talks about the stage guy for the band he's working for at the moment. I won't mention them, uh, but it's a big band. Um, he said their stage guy is this kind of really rough Scottish kind of guy. He's in his late fifties, and he points to his left nostril. And he says, "You see that? That's a Ferrari." You see that? That's a Lamborghini. Uh -huh. That's how much money I've put up these bloody things. That's, yeah, and that's true. <laughs> and I believe that. Yeah. That was uh, that. I, that was, I laugh because I'm thinking of my own experience <laughs> about the money that I spent when I was drinking. And I also remember um, Frank Zappa. There's a great, great quote about Frank Zappa when he was the first guy to ever, you know, I remember seeing a thing in Guitar Player magazine of him with this extraordinary, like, brand new first edition Sony digital recording thing in 1980-something. How do you afford all this stuff, Frank? Simple. I never did coke. Yeah, and that's the <laughs> truth. I mean, and 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 along with that, 
I never judge anybody. I mean, I'll sit with these people and let them drink. You seem pretty good with the lingo, man. You seem pretty good with the nicknames. But I mean, they can they can order anything they want. They can drink anything they want in front of me. They can do whatever they want to in front of me. I don't judge them. I mean, that's their trip. That's that's what they want to do with their lives. That's their business. And and I'm I'm happy for them if that's whatever. As my friend, one of my better friends is in AA in the program and. he says his motto is whatever works for you. And if that's what you want to do, you know, God bless. If if that's not what I'm choosing to do. Yeah. So, you know. Yeah. But I certainly don't judge them. I hang with I hang with people, you know, some folks may be out here, some folks may be at home, and um, they live the completely opposite lifestyle that I lead, but they're some of my best friends. And like I said, you know, it's just you can't be judgmental and be in this business, you know. That's why I just don't mention it, you know. No, but that, that, there's plenty of people, both religious and not religious, who who are quite judgmental about this this sort of thing and they, they kind of get off on it a bit, I think. It's funny because I almost lost a, uh, a client. I, I was uh, doing commercials at one point in my life quite a few commercials and uh, I was doing a commercial for Coca-Cola so it was a big client that's huge yeah and uh, certainly with the royalties you get on those gigs man yeah the, the, yeah and <laughs> the the buyer came down he flew out to Santa Monica and he met me at um, this hotel very swanky and he said, please meet me at the bar. I said, fine. So I walked in and I, he introduced himself, really nice guy. He said, what are you drinking? I said, I'll just have water, please. He said, no, I don't have a drink. I said, uh, no, I don't drink alcohol. He said, what do you mean you don't drink alcohol? I said, I don't drink alcohol. He said, why not? He said, I don't trust people that don't drink alcohol. And I said, why don't you trust them? He said, for two reasons. Either they have a religious hang-up about it and I don't want to work with them, or they have a problem with it, and I don't want to work with them. And I said, or the third option, he said, what's that? And I said, I don't like the taste of it. And he said, I never considered that. (laughs) And I said, well, that's the reason I don't drink. I don't care for the taste of it. I said, do you smoke cigarettes? He said, no. I said, why not? He said, because I don't like smoke. Okay, okay, let's go. (laughs) And so that's great. It was actually, and I was glad that I came up with that because I almost was a non-starter. The guy yeah. didn't want to work with somebody that didn't drink alcohol. <laughs> I thought that's kind of weird. Mate, we've been in, we've had this for a while. I'm really grateful. So I just want to quickly, just like, just one little quick thing, if you wouldn't mind. You mentioned before a couple of big names, and I just quickly just the the first thing that comes to your mind when you when you hear Jimmy Page. Yeah. What do you think about? The guy, the guy was a brilliant, brilliant producer and arranger I don't think people realize that that was that was a lot of his skill and um, was arranging the songs in the way that they did and obviously he wrote them too he was brilliant at that but uh, great guitar player but great um, great arranger and producer mostly Paul McCartney I mean come on one of the greatest songwriters in the world I mean Super sweet guy, you know, super talented, um, very humble, and um, probably, yeah, you know, one of my top three favorite humans. (laughs) Eric Clapton. Definitely one of my top three favorite humans. (laughs) It's getting rough. It's getting clouded at the top there. It is. And he's... uh, you know, he's brilliant. But, you know, all of these guys cite Page and Clapton, both cite Jeff Beck as the guitar He's the player. last on my list here, Jeff Beck. He's so unbelievable. I mean, the guy is, I mean, he's a treasure, really a treasure, you know. He is, he is one of my favorite humans, and I have never had a better time with anyone on the road than Jeff. But... To, and he literally sleeps with a guitar and when I say that I mean it's literally by his bed and in his living room there is a guitar at each chair 
and at each position of the couch. So wherever he sits, he can pick it up. And they're all the same. They're all the Jeff Beck model. And he just plays, and he has it with him all the time. And it's literally his voice. I mean, it's like he would rather play than speak to you because he thinks he could demonstrate it better by playing it rather than trying to explain it to you. And so interviews annoy him, I think, because people will ask him, how do you do that? I can't tell you how I do it because I do it, you know, but, but then even he cites Hendrix as the, you know, his major influence. Yeah. He said, you know, everybody, you know, every, all of us, we all looked at Jimmy and said, well, why even bother playing anymore? Which is unbelievable to me because I never saw Hendrix live and I do admire his recordings. But like I said, I'm a guitar owner, not a guitar player. <laughs> when you stand next to Jeff Beck, you'll see what a guitar player plays like. And, you know, the guy's, I mean, he is really unbelievable. But, I mean, everybody points to him as the guy that's living as the world's best guitar player. Yeah. And he really is. So we've, we've covered a lot of ground here, and I'm very, very grateful for your time. So not everyone's going to want to grow up and join the Beach Boys, all right? But everyone, everyone cause, you know, <laughs> it's crowded up there on stage. Everyone listening has got something that, you know, they want to write in their high school book or, or is the thing that they dream about sitting at their job in a cubicle or whatever job they're doing or at home. What, what would you say to people who are thinking of, you know, that thing that seems unattainable? I think you, you have to take the first step. And as Martin Luther King would say, even if you can't see the entire staircase, you have to take the first step. And um, so if you don't ask, the answer is already no. So I asked, basically, by driving down to Bel Air. And Brian could easily have said, go away. But if I didn't drive down, then it, I never tried. I didn't take the first step. So I think you have to act on whatever it is that you want to do. And if you think it's unattainable, then you've already lost the battle. But at least try. I mean, if you want to work for Hewlett Packard or you want to work for the Australian government, whatever it is you want to do, you know, then you need to figure out what minimum qualifications are required and meet those and then go knock on their door. That's, it's that simple. Or the answer is already no. I love it. Thank you so, so much. I know you've got to go and get to, get to work. Yeah, now I've got to start my day. <laughs> I only need 125th of a second to yeah. take a photo, okay? That's fine, no problem. Okay. That was Jeffrey Foskett. You can go and see the Beach Boys as they tour around Australia this week. Thanks so much for listening to the show. If you're still here, please support Movember. Contribute to my Mo which I have to shave off tomorrow for a photo shoot. So I'm going to start again with a one-day-old Mo the next day. The website is mobro.co slash Ginsburg. Just a dollar do it. But if you like this show, please consider throwing in a bit more. I'm, I'm committed to normalizing the conversation around mental health and Movember's focus on suicide prevention is why I'm 100% behind what they do. Um, if you don't contribute to my Mo, consider someone else close to you you know someone that's growing a moustache give them some cash it all goes to the same bank account at the end of the day alright that's it for me um, I'm going to crawl onto this air mattress and go to sleep um, safe and warm in Brisbane, Australia um, but I wish you a good week wherever you are in the world that you're safe that you hug your kids a little bit tighter tonight and that um try as hard as we can to make the little small amount of world around us a little bit better tomorrow I'll talk to you next week until then sleep well dream of beautiful things
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky, smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a woman-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.